0: Welcome to Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life. I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness.
1: And I'm Ann Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. So Sherry, as you know, Back in October, I had the amazing opportunity to go to Kona with one of my clients, the Iron Man group. And I was invited to sit on a panel discussion with Feisty Media. Shout out to Feisty Media, a bunch of kick-ass, badass women. And I felt a little bit like a fish out of water. This was Iron Man's first ever all women's world championship for doing an Ironman and I have run a couple of five K's in my life. That's about the extent of it. So I'm on this stage with these two amazing women and this dude that I had no idea who he was. Turns out he's somebody famous in the triathlon world and one of the gals sitting next to me was Michelle Simmons. And I just, every, she was sitting right next to me and I just noticed her like gigantic beaming smile and her amazing energy. And she just really had such an amazing story to tell. And so we were chatting afterwards and I just said, Hey, you should maybe come on our podcast and talk about your story. And she said, yep. And I'm telling you, I think this is the fastest, Sherry, you and I have ever gone from a, Hey, maybe you should be on our podcast to recording. I mean, I think it was literally a week week. And here we are. So I am delighted to introduce Michelle Simmons. Michelle has completed 18 Ironmans, four times at the world championships and too many half Ironmans to even count. I asked her before we started. She's like, I don't know. I've lost 50. I don't know. I've lost count. Oh my God. She is amazing. Michelle is an endurance coach and mom to a 15-year-old amazing daughter and she lives in Honolulu, Hawaii where she loves to swim in the ocean. And I am just super super excited to welcome you Michelle. We read that one of your philosophies is that happy people perform better and I just can't wait to hear a little bit more about that. Welcome to the podcast. We're so happy to have you.
2: Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. A couple things from that introduction that you just did one of the, the things I live by is that, that James Clear, you know, I'm the kind of person who I'm the kind of person who gets things done, right? I'm the kind of person who takes action when I decide that I have a goal. And yeah. so the fact that we turn this podcast around as quickly as we did, it might be as surprise to you, but it's kind of not for me. That is how <laughs> I operate in my life. Like I have an idea. I'm like, let's go. Let's go.
1: What's holding us back. Let's do it right now. Why not?
2: Think about it. Just just take action and go. and it's it's really cool, actually, what happens
1: in your life when you just yeah. don't overthink it, take the step, do the thing. I mean, part of what you're saying is like, you get this opportunity presented, and you shared with me after I had invited you to come on. And you're like, "God, this is so weird." And to our listeners, not weird at all, because you had said earlier in the year or something that you wanted to get your message out a little bit more and you wanted people to hear your voice and to be on podcasts and things like that. And so you're like, this is kind of like magical alchemy happening all at once, which is incredible.
2: It really is. And and that story is absolutely true. I mean, in July, I was working with a coach and he's saying, you know, what are your goals? Write down three goals, you know, as we do. And so one of my goals was, I will be on five podcasts by the end of the year. And that was in July. It's October now as we record. And this is number
1: six. (laughs) Overachiever. (laughs) Shocker. (laughs) (laughs) So,
0: Michelle, tell us a little bit more about your journey. And I love that part of where you have ended up is I'm the kind of person who, but let's go back a bit and hear more about your journey.
2: Sure. So I grew up in Ohio. I was born and raised there. Well, my parents still live there, and I'm sure it's a lovely place. The fact that it snows there is not my <laughs> cup of tea. <laughs> That's
1: the living in Hawaii thing.
2: <laughs> Since I'm the kind of person who decides what I want for my life and makes it happen, I left Ohio when I was 18 and had the opportunity to do so. I've always been an athlete my whole life. So my mom saw me sitting in the center splits when I was four years old, like while watching TV. And she's like, let's put this one in gymnastics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to be honest, I don't know where it came from. You almost want to say that it's innate somehow that I'm the kind of person who works hard, is always going for my best, because even at a very young age, when the gymnastics coach would be like you need to you know accumulate 60 pull-ups over the course of this workout today and i would be like 60 i'm doing 80 <laughs> you know? like so like
1: always this is not surprising you
2: know, me <laughs> I, and this is from a young age so i've i've always just been the if a little bit is good more is better as an adult i have learned now that that is not always true but as a kid that is how i grew up so yeah i've i've been an athlete my whole life i was a gymnast, and then I was a swimmer and a diver in high school and college. After college, I found triathlon, and I'm the kind of person who's more is more. Triathlon definitely fits that bill. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing, Ironman's. You like? It's really hard to do too much. It's possible to go too hard, but it's not really possible to do too much. So I, I found myself very much drawn to that. I was in my 20s. At this point, I was living in Arizona. I had been doing triathlons for several years already. There was a race that I did. It's actually, I think it's no longer in existence anymore, but it was a half Ironman triathlon in California called Wildflower. And it was known as one of the hardest, hilliest courses around, but I could drive there from Arizona. And I have very specific memory of treading water in Lake San Antonio, waiting for the gun to go off. And I knew that there was something physically wrong with me Mm. at that moment. I didn't know what it was. Did you feel something or was it more just like I just had an innate knowing? Well, earlier that week, I had woken up to a chain of inflamed lymph nodes all along Mm. my collarbone Mm -hmm. and they were grape sized lumps. They did not hurt to touch, but it was inflamed. And so it hurt to turn my head. Right. And so I knew for sure something's wrong with me. And I did go see a doctor at the time. It wasn't like a doctor that I had a good relationship with, because, again, at the time, if you picture the scene, I'm a healthy 25 year old. I don't have a close relationship with a doctor because I never went to see doctors. And so I do remember he he did a couple of tests. We took an X-ray and he said, you know, you might have mono. And I said, Oh my gosh, doc, you don't understand. I can't have mono. I have three half Ironmans and a full Ironman on my schedule this summer. I do not have time for mono. (laughs) And he looked back at me and he said, No, I will never forget this. No, you don't understand. If you have mono, we jump up and down and clap our hands. (laughs) <laughs> this would be a whole other story about how, you know, easy it is to live in denial. I did not ask him for clarification on what do you mean, doc? Like, wow. Today I would ask that question. What do you mean? What are the other, I was like, Okay, thanks. And I walked out of his office and I got in my car and I drove to California the same day <laughs> doing my race. And so it was more like I've got, I've got shit haunting. to do. <laughs> yeah, it was like this haunting <laughs> nagging that like something's not right with me, but I'm gonna go live my life anyway and pretend that this isn't happening. So I finished the race that day. And what's interesting is you know how your experience of of something is what it is in the moment. And then later you can look back and see it in a totally different yep. light. So sure. on that day, as I completed the race, I felt a degree of frustration. I'm not all there. I didn't have that extra gear. I couldn't push the way that I normally push. And I was somewhat disappointed at my finish time. And I tell you what, I look back now and be like, are you kidding me? I did that wildflower on in 546 when I had cancer. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, so It was only a couple of days later that I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. And again, go back to being 25. I'm like, what is Hodgkin's disease? I don't know what this is. The doctor's saying it's a cancer of your lymphatic system. And I'm like, what's a lymphatic system? I don't know what that is, right? So all of this is just completely out of the blue. And for me at the time, I really was like, I'm just not gonna be your typical cancer patient. Like, how could I be? I'm I'm the healthiest person in this whole damn hospital, 25 old. You know, I compete in triathlons. Like this is not happening to me. And and like, this is not going to get me. So genuinely this surprised no one who knows me within a half an hour of getting off the phone with the doctor. I'm out for a run. (laughs) (laughs) My mom's like, what are you doing? yeah. Well, I mean, anyone who has a movement practice would know that. How do you clear your head? Right. And it's like, I'm going to get, by myself and I'm going to move my body. And when I'm doing that, I can think clearly I can have these ideas. And so, you know, 45 minutes later, I bounce back in the house. Everybody else is in tears, you know, like doomsday. And I'm like, nope, got it figured out. The doctor said Hodgkin's disease is very curable. We have a 97% cure rate here. Yep. I have to go through chemo and radiation for the next six months or so. And that part's going to suck, but I'm super strong. I'm healthy and I'm going to be fine. And so essentially, like that's what we did. I went through the treatments. I will not pretend that they were easy. I mean, they mm. definitely, it was humbling. So this was like May, June of 1999. By December of that year, I mean, I was an unrecognizable person in mm. that, like, I was skinny, I was gray, I was bald. The chemo and radiation, like, what they did to my body to remove the cancer cells looking back now was extreme and it worked in december of that year right after i did my last treatment like i'll spare you there was a lot of details and if you wanted to go into them we could but it would take like i mean i could talk on that for six hours and probably nobody needs to know all those details but when i started my my path to recovery right where i'm like i'm just gonna get back to normal and at the time you know i had role models like lance armstrong and this is yeah. before we knew that he was a dober, and I was so disappointed in that, like, oh Aww. my God, it's literally like when he won his first yellow Jersey, I had just finished like my second chemo treatment. Wow. And so to me, as an athlete going through this cancer treatment at the time to have a role model like Lance Armstrong, who had been through his own cancer journey and made a comeback to sport, right. that was just insanely inspirational and motivating. Yeah. And I was a big fan and a huge defender of Lance Armstrong. We don't need to go there too much on this podcast. <laughs> and how disappointed I was. <laughs> I, found out I imagine. Yeah, because it genuinely was like that to me was an inspiration that this is not going to get me. Well, let me go back to because there was a part of that story that matters a lot. Before I started the treatment, what the doctor in Arizona told me was that. He reiterated, but there's a 97% cure rate here, Michelle. You know, this next year is going to suck, yes, but you're going to get through it. Because I will warn you that potentially down the line, because of the treatment that we are going to be giving to you, you may be at an increased risk for breast cancer, lung cancer, thyroid cancer, something like that in the future. And he goes, But here's the thing we're talking like 20 years from now. What we need to do is deal with the urgent, problem we have in front of us, which is the lymphoma that you have right now. So we're going to treat that right now. And then if those things happen down the road, we'll deal with them then. Mm. Yep. Doc, I'm on board. Right. So that's what we did. And so then you fast forward to the next 20 years of my life and I traveled internationally. I continue doing trial plans, including the 18 Ironmans that I did four times at the world championships. I'm succeeding in my life. I get married. I have a beautiful daughter. I start my own business. I'm doing all the things. And I would say on the outside, but even on the inside, like I'm yeah. proud of myself, I'm living the life that I want to live. And for the most part, during those years, I don't want to say I forgot that I had cancer, but I did not live in this state where I was reminding myself every day of what I went through, right? Like I put that away in a box. And the only time I ever really talked about it was when I heard that when I would be introduced to somebody else who was just diagnosed with cancer. And in that moment, I could be like, join the club. And then I can relate to you in a way that maybe other people can't. The first time that Chemo needle goes into your arm and you see the chemo going in. It's like you just join a club. And I remember thinking that, like, I'm joining this club that I don't want to join, but I'm in it now and it is what it is. And so anyone in that club, right? I'm like, I get it. I get you. But other than that, I really didn't let it define my life or put any limitations on me at all. And then where it gets interesting for me is right around that 20 year mark. I was diagnosed on Cinco de Mayo. So because it's a holiday that I don't want to say everybody celebrates, but you know, it's a thing. Every Cinco de Mayo, I go flashback to being diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. Right. And then I counted the years. So I knew how many years, it's been 15 years. I'm still good. Everything's good. You know, no more cancer. And oh my gosh, around that 20 year mark, things just started going south. And I started having some pretty serious anxiety. And a lot of it was recalling what that doctor had told me that I'm at a greater risk now for lung cancer, breast cancer, thyroid cancer, pick the thing. I was just sure that something, I mean, that was poison what they gave to me. And I don't know, you know, it's coming back to get me. I was sure. So I started noticing any little thing that wasn't right with me right? So instead of focusing on how am I strong? What am I doing right? Where am I excelling? I start looking for any sign that tells me that I have cancer again. So I'm going to the doctors and I'm not breathing well, as you can imagine. When you start having anxiety, the first thing physiologically that happens is your breath starts getting trapped in your chest, right? Right. So I'm like just breathing high and tight. And the cascade of events that happens when we're breathing high and tight. And looking for all the bad things that are potentially maybe one day going to happen to us. <laughs> you know, like, I sent myself down this spiral of anxiety to the point yeah. where two times I landed in the ER thinking I'm having a heart attack because I literally can't breathe.
1: Did you have the words at that point? Would you have called it anxiety or is that like you reflecting now? It's only now that I would yeah. it anxiety
2: at the time. I didn't really know what anxiety was at the time. All I knew was that I had cancer 20 years ago. The doctor told me that 20 years from now, I'm like what my memory of what he said was, I'm going to have cancer again. So now I'm just straight up looking for it. Right. And the doctors are doing all these scans and they can't find anything. And I'm like, well, look harder
1: because i'm sure
2: (laughs) but what was interesting is to one of my complaints was i can't breathe i feel like i can't breathe so he sends me to a pulmonologist where they run the whole battery of tests so now i'm failing these breathing tests and this is mind you at the same time that i'm competing in ironman triathlons i'm living this life where on the outside i'm competing in ironman triathlons my performance had started to go down, I'm sure, because of, you know, this whole thing. Like, I just couldn't focus on training the same way. But meanwhile, I'm failing these pulmonary function tests. Saying and, and then when you have this straight-up data, look, see, I fail this test. I can't mm-hmm. even fully exhale. See, yeah. it's, there's proof. There's something wrong with me. And the pulmonologist can't figure it out because they can't find anything else wrong.
1: Anything and, physically wrong.
2: Right. And so they're telling me I'm diagnosed with anxiety and I'm like, I'm not crazy. Like you don't know me because in my mind, anxiety, crazy, right? Right. Together. And I'm like, I'm not the kind of person who, who's crazy, doctor. If you've seen what I've done with my life, this is not me. Like, find what's wrong with me and fix that mm. so I can go back to being a superhero.
1: Well, let me just stop you for a second. Cause I mean, this has got to be incredibly freaking frustrating because you had all these things that you were doing that were going really well and you were super successful. So I gotta imagine when somebody tells you you're suffering from anxiety. What impact does that have on you? I mean, other than you're like, screw you, find the physical thing that's wrong with me. Like what impact did that really have on you, do you think?
2: So three doctors diagnosed me with anxiety before I even like looked up what anxiety is. <laughs> <Right? Wow>. like, <laughs> three times I was like, you are wrong. You know, there's something wrong with me. And the thing is, looking back, it's it's almost comical now because I, I look back and I see exactly what the doctors are seeing because what am I doing? I'm failing a pulmonary function test. And then I go to Dr. Google for my consultation and I find out I diagnose myself with pulmonary fibrosis, right? Which uh-huh. means I'm going to suffocate to death. That seems like a terrible way to die. These are, this is how my brain is spiraling out of control. My daughter's 11. She's going to grow up without a mom. So imagine yeah. what is happening to you physically when you're having these thoughts. So I'm having the thoughts. I'm not breathing well. And then I'm having all the other symptoms that go along with not breathing well. My palms are sweating. My heart rate's high. I'm talking really fast like this. And when the third doctor diagnosed me with anxiety, and I just wanted to be like, just go. No, that's not it. And it really had to be me coming to my own conclusion. Like Having the doctor tell me that I had anxiety is not what led me to accept that that was what was happening in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. Like what led me to accept that was, I don't know, magically finding a calm moment somehow reading about what anxiety actually is like on my own time in my own space and then going like, oh yeah. Okay. You know what? I think that's what's happening here.
0: I'm hearing something really interesting that I think is speaking to where you might be going. And I don't want to spoil the plot for anybody, but you talked in the beginning of, well, I'm the kind of person who says I'm going to do something and then I do it. And then it was, I'm not the kind of person who gets anxiety. And I'm just going to say this mindset of, I'm the kind of person who in some ways, it sounds like it's a huge strength. And in some ways it sounds like it's, as we all have, is the very thing that's a strength is often the thing that completely trips us up. Because what you're describing is, I'm not even open to the possibility that it's anxiety and I'm going to prove them all wrong because I'm not the kind of person who has anxiety. Right. Yeah.
2: That phase probably lasted six months, Mm -hmm. right? Where I was just, I'm in denial. But what's interesting, and as you know, if you've ever dealt with anyone who has anxiety, the more we deny that we have anxiety, the louder and louder that signal gets it just starts screaming at you, hence the two times into the ER, <laughs> right? you know, because I'm I'm just not accepting that I have this. There was a turnaround when I finally got quiet with myself and was like, okay, there's a possibility that this is what's going on. You know, my doctor wanted to give me anxiety meds. Maybe those would have been good to take, but I was not, again, it I was not for the you. Kind of, it's a pill to fix my problems. Like I'll fix it myself. Thank you. And so this is around like 2019, 2020. So during the pandemic time or a bit, so mine had started before the pandemic and then you like stack the pandemic on top. And the blessing for me in that was that you've had a lot of experts that went online sharing their message, Mm. right? About how to help yourself. And I was not the only person suffering from anxiety in the beginning of 2020. I would say like the etiology of my anxiety was different from where somebody else's anxiety may have come from. The reality was that's where I found myself. And then because everything was online in 2020, I found breath practitioners, people who were teaching about breathing, and prior to that, I had not been open to, you know, in my mind, woo-woo, you know, like like breathing practices. Like I wasn't a yoga person. I wasn't like, no, I'm just taking i I'm a triathlete. I got shit to do.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and no You're time to breathe.
2: Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not doing that. But at the time, I was like, let me just, I was, I was so desperate, I think. I was in such a bad state of my life, which was not normal for me. Like it didn't feel like this is where I should be. And I am a problem solver. So like I'm open-minded enough now, desperate enough. Now I'll try anything and the try anything turned out to be
1: get quiet, Uh breathe slower and breathe breathe and slow it all down. And so somebody might've given you that advice at some other point in your life and you would have like blown it off or, or whatever. At this point you are desperate. So you're like, you're going to try anything, but, but what is it that actually happened for you when you were able to slow down, get quiet and pay attention to your breathing?
2: So here's the thing. It was a temporary fix. Like, this was not the the cure for my anxiety. Like, the breathing, all it did was it just helped me get a little more grounded. But in those four years, I really still lived in this in-between of, like, half the time, I'm still worried about how I'm going to die and what cancer is coming back and all of this. I had some tips and tricks to manage that when it was happening, Mm -hmm. but it was still happening a lot. And then on the other side, I'm still out biking and swimming. And like, it's just this whole dichotomy that how am I still doing this? If I'm physically as unhealthy as I think I am, the big shift for me happened earlier this year. It was like March of 2023. And I went to a mindset clinic and a lot of that was because the reason I went to the mindset clinic, it was hardly even for me. It was because at the time I was a tri- I'm still a triathlon coach. I have been a triathlon coach for 15 years. And one thing that I, I noticed a pattern with my athletes, which you mentioned earlier, is that the happiest athletes race the fastest. They're the ones that seem to like have the best race experiences. They come out of it full of joy. And then there's other people who can train perfectly, but then not have the experience that they wanted during the race. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, I need to learn more about this mindset stuff, not for me, but so that I can help my athletes. Mm -hmm. And so with that in mind, I head to this mindset clinic thinking, this is going to make me better so I can help other people. And the leader of the clinic What he has us do is he's like, think about a story that haunts you, you know, something that you're still living with and write that story down. So I'm like, I have my notebook out and I love to write. So I'm just furiously writing about how like this doctor in Arizona 20 years ago told me that I'm going to have cancer again and I'm a sitting duck and I'm just waiting for it to come back and I really don't want to go through these treatments again. And what about my daughter? And like all the thoughts, I just put them down on paper. And then he asked for a volunteer to share their story, right? And if you know me by now, I'm the kind of person who.
1: (laughs) He hadn't even finished asking the question. You're already like moving to the front of the room. I gotcha. (laughs) To,
2: To be fair, part of it was I knew that that was my story. And with other mindset coaches that I had worked with, the way that they would try to shift your story to make it so that it's not haunting you anymore is to, to show you how it's not true. And in my mind I'm like I don't know how to shift this story so that it's not true because I actually went through these chemo treatments. The doctor actually told me all of that and I had a husband at home who's reinforcing that. You know, every time something's not wrong with me he's like, "Well, you know, you did go through chemo treatments 20 years ago." I'm like, "I know. My body's poisoned and I'm right like living in that mindset." And so I'm like, "That's true. So you can't tell me that it's not true." So the difference was when I wrote down my story and then the facilitator of this, this clinic says, read it out loud. Like, <laughs> Are you kidding me? Like in front of this group of 20 people who I hardly know, I'm reading about how 25 years ago I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease and the doctor told me this. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm just bawling, crying because it's all coming back. And then he says, great, read it again. So like I read the whole thing again, like more tears, full on waterworks. And it's getting a little bit easier, but it's still like just really sticky. And he says, okay, now read it again. And this time, you're going to insert a big breath after every sentence or like at the end of each thought. And this is where, like, the big emotional release comes from. So I read it again. And because I'd been working on my breathing, I do think that was a really big piece of the reason why this process worked for me, is because I knew how to breathe deeply by that point. So I'm doing just these huge, full inhales, full exhales as I'm recounting this memory and what it meant to me of what this doctor had said. And going through that process was like something absolutely magical shifted it shifted in my psyche it shifted in my mindset it shifted in my body i could feel it like my diaphragm was spasming as i'm reading this out loud i was having a physical reaction and it was like breathing through that story allowed a physical energy release from my body it was incredible and at the end of it what i saw was this doctor in Arizona, whose name I can't remember, by the way. But you remember what he said. (laughs) I don't remember his name. I don't remember what he looks like. All I remembered was this spell that he cast on me that I interpreted. He didn't say, you will have cancer again in 20 years. What he said was, this treatment puts you at an increased risk for that. We'll deal with that later if it happens. But in my psyche, what I had interpreted was this is happening and then I'm looking for it to happen. And so in writing it all out, getting really clear, gaining some space and clarity from what this situation actually was, it was huge because I'm like, wait a minute, he was just doing his job. He he was genuinely just doing his job and warning me about something so that I was aware. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen to me. Wait, Michelle, you're not a
1: typical cancer patient. It's interesting that you called a spell That's very specific language. Unpack that for us a little bit. Why do you call it casting a spell?
2: The reason I did that was because it was the language that the facilitator of that mindset clinic used. So he pulled out a pen and he called it his magic wand. And he said, if you want to shift your story, write it down. And this is the thing. When you write the story down, it's not like you're changing the events that happened. I still had cancer. I went through the cancer treatments. The doctor actually said that. I'm not changing the events of the past. What I'm changing is the way I'm interpreting that story and what it means to me, what it means about me. And It works so well that it genuinely comes across like poof. It was a magic spell where I lived with the spell that this doctor that I would say, I let that doctor cast the spell on me and I lived with it for 20 years and it was easy to put away in a box because he said, we won't deal with that for like 20 years. He didn't even Mm -hmm. say exactly 20 years. He said like 20 years, but in my mind, I hear 20 years is all coming to get me now And what's interesting, Anne, is that I've never shared this story publicly before. I've shared it a couple times with individual friends. And the thing that really caught me is that every time I've done that, the friend has said, oh, I remember a teacher in sixth grade. And he told me that no matter how much I studied, I was never going to be good enough. I remember my first boss. Like I was a journalist straight out of college and my first boss and he told me that no matter how hard I worked that I was never I didn't have that talent. I was never going to be that good. And so the realization for me was was beyond just here's my story and how it affected me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I am so grateful to gain space and clarity from that story and be able to move on from it. And I will tell you now, while occasionally an anxious thought will come through my head, it's so easy to let go. It is. I do not have the same physiological reaction right. that I had before I went through that process. And when I went through that, I thought, oh my God, I need to get certified in that method. I want to teach people how to do that. I want to serve people so that if they have that story, that's haunting them, I can
1: walk them through. It's a very simple process. Like it's not hard. We just don't do it. You know, what strikes me, Michelle, is you push back if you don't agree with what I'm about to say, but it's like, what the doctor said was more or less neutral. He was sort of like stating the facts. This might possibly in 20 years have this impact, whatever. So it's almost like you through your interpretation cast the spell on yourself. Same thing. Sixth grade teacher said whatever they could say great things or shitty things or whatever, but it's the way we take it on board ourselves. What do you think about that? Do you think that's true? hundred percent. It's
2: like the way we internalize what we heard. And we know this to be true because in pick a conversation, people will, will, you know, you'll have a conversation. One person says one thing and the way that that other person hears it Is the way that they heard it. And it's not necessarily what exactly was said.
1: Or intended or any of
2: that. Yeah. Right. Right. And then, but, and what we do to ourselves when we interpret the message from, and I would say typically this is going to be from the message would be from someone who's in a position of authority, somebody who we respect said something, we interpret it a certain way it sits inside of us, it smolders, and then it impacts the way that we think, the way that we feel, which we know then impacts the way that we act. And then it's like, pick this whole That's thing. Right. And then you go, when you can go back and identify the root cause of like, where did that come from? And I can look back now and be like, how to diagnose yourself with anxiety, right? <laughs> right. how to give yourself anxiety, right? Yeah. is exactly you know, what I did. It's like, wow. And I have the power to cure it by changing my interpretation of the story, or I'm shifting the way that I'm thinking about this thing. And then it allo- it opens the door for all the other things to shift.
0: What you're talking about is very interesting, just in the overall context of mindset, because Anne and I talk about mindset a lot, and we talk about mindset on small things, on big things. It feels like you're talking about this very specific slice that happens to almost everybody where for whatever reason, somebody says something that lands on a very tender spot, whether it's a unconscious fear or an unconscious belief, but I think what you're talking about is so important because this goes way beyond just day-to-day mindset or looking at a specific situation and shifting your mindset. And on all of those, those change our experience as well. But there's something about these moments where of the millions of things that could get inside of us and stick, this is the one that takes root. And I don't even know that I'm really trying to make a specific point other than it's a very useful thing to think about what is your story that constantly comes up or nags in the back of your mind, or you think you're so done with it and it gets triggered again, because those are the ones that are much, much stickier than the millions of other ways that mindset is important.
2: 100%. And when you can get to the root of it and discover what the root of it is, its Writing it down, it genuinely changes everything. We can talk ourselves in circles and it's just really hard to get a hold of the story. But when it's down on paper, you can actually look at the words and then you're asking yourself, is that true? Yeah, and you had mentioned Byron Katie to me and I listened to some of her and I thought, yes, those questions like, is it true? Can you be absolutely certain that that is true? And then
1: when you have that thought, how does that affect you? Yeah. Who would you be without that thought? Look at you taking all of Byron Katie's work right on board. 100%. Like when you get into that, it's like,
2: oh yeah, okay, hang on. I'm in charge. And like, I'm having this thought, is that thought making my life better or is it making my life harder? And then who's in charge of changing that thought? Oh, me? Me? Wait a minute. I can change that thought. I have that power. I have that control. I change the way I'm thinking and I change the way I'm feeling. And that changes the way I act. I grasp onto these things. Like I want to be in charge of my life. Mm. I want to take responsibility for my life. I don't want something that I don't control affect my life. And so the idea of like finding that story at its root cause and extracting it and ripping it apart,
1: is like, oh, what a relief that is. And can I help other people do that? Because this is cool. Well, and that's just, I mean, we're gonna have to wind down here in just a moment, but that's the question I wanted to ask you is, so how are you using this in your endurance coach training that you're doing with other folks? Are you able to apply this to help people race better?
2: Yeah, so I'm doing it some in my endurance coaching. I've actually shifted some to starting like a secondary business of sorts, where it's like, I will do story work coaching so it's sometimes it's with the athlete, but generally it really has nothing to do with the The athletics is, is very much a side note to this because most of what we're dealing with is like a memory from 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago that happened. And so I set aside like a separate time where mm. I, mindset coaching and it's story work coaching. So I, I did, I went ahead and I got certified level one and level two through this and lifted method because I was like, that's just so cool. And I'm just two feet in jumping in, like doing the whole thing. It's an exciting time for me personally, because I'm like, okay, I have the triathlon coaching thing and that's awesome. And I can ask my clients stories when they write out, here's what I was thinking. I have better questions now to like prod a little more, ask them a little more. So I'd say my endurance coaching athletes, are benefiting but it's a secondary mindset story work coaching sort of business that I have started and I am in love with it and it's so cool when you see the aha happen with a client and they're like wait a minute yeah that was her thing not that that wasn't even about me yeah. you're like ah, magic <laughs>
1: Well, I just want to invite any listeners that we will put contact information for Michelle into the show notes because if this at all sounds interesting to you, you have an opportunity to chat with her. Thank you for that, Michelle.
2: Yeah, I would love that. I genuinely, this work is so meaningful to me. So it's just a pleasure to get to work. That's how I feel like I'm looking at it like I get to help you work
0: through this. Oh, pinch me. I can't wait. So I feel like we have barely scratched the surface. We're going to have to have your journey. Yeah. (laughs) And, I'm curious if you could go back in time, knowing what you know now and having been what you've been through, both on the endurance front, on the health front, on the anxiety front. What words of wisdom would you share with your younger self?
2: So it's an excellent question. And I thought a lot about this. And I, I need to preface it with. If I gave my younger self advice of what I know now, I don't think my younger self would have listened. <laughs> That's so I'll preface it with that because my younger self is very bullheaded and I have it all figured out and nobody's telling me what to do. And like with your advice, I'm doing my thing. However, if I could get myself to listen back then, I would say, slow down, let yourself rest. You don't have to be Perfect. You don't need to prove anything to anyone. And now I feel like, you know, as a I'm almost 50, it's like at this point in my life, all of that is just seamlessly of course. It's so easy now. When I'm 30, if you would have told me that, I'd have been like, stop it with your woo-woo, whatever. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I don't have time to slow down and rest. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm a go-getter.
2: Like, like slowing down is for wimps. That's for people who aren't as strong as me. And now I'm like, okay, you know what? If had I had I been able to hear that advice, I do believe my life could have been better. along but at the same time I would have compassion for that young person who isn't in the mindset of being able to hear that that's what it would be is like people I'm sure were telling me all this stuff could I hear it no you know I'm not looking for it but yeah the slowing down part let yourself rest enjoy the moment I mean I lived in the future a lot what am I aiming for what's the next goal and now I live much more in the present moment what am I looking forward to today the sky is really pretty today. Those, those kinds of things where right? I appreciate the moment a lot more.
1: Well, Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. And I totally agree with Sherry. I think we could keep talking for hours because you have so many great, interesting stories. And so we'll look forward to having you on another time or something. We could continue the conversation, but for now, I think that's going to wrap up our time with you.
0: Thank you. So thank I appreciate you. this opportunity to share. On that note, we're going to wrap up our episode for today. We really hope you enjoyed it and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find information in previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, the perfectly imperfect journey to a fulfilled life.